The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and join me in Matthew. Let's not do that. Let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 3. Matthew is what we read for our scripture reading. Romans chapter 3. We are marching, it seems like, at a furious pace through this uh, epistle, and yet there are places we're going to have to stop and slow down, and this is definitely one of them. We're in a series on sola fide, the Latin words for faith alone, and we've come today to a very momentous section of not only Romans, but the whole Bible. Follow along as I read Romans 3, verses 27 and 28. Because God is just and the justifier, he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In his classic theological treatment of the doctrine of justification, entitled The Doctrine of Justification, James Buchanan wrote, The revival of the gospel of justification, the doctrine of justification, was the chief means of effecting the reformation of religion in the 16th century. In other words, he goes on to say, the central divide in the history of the church, known as the Protestant Reformation, was all about the doctrine of justification. How does a man be in the right with a holy God having a sinful soul? More recently, John MacArthur writes, No doctrine is more important to evangelical theology than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, for John to say that, that's a pretty big statement. Let me read it again. No doctrine is more important to evangelical theology than the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the Reformation principle of sola fide. Martin Luther called it the article that determines whether the church is standing or falling, end quote. I think both John and both Martin Luther are right. Every church theologically should be judged, can be assessed on what it states and believes and teaches and preaches and applies about the doctrine of justification. What does it mean for a man, a woman, a child to be in the right with God? How important is this doctrine? Well, it defines the means by which a person is saved. I would say heaven and hell in eternity are important enough to, do- to justify such a designation as this is the most important doctrine to judge a church by. It defines how a person comes into a right relationship with God. It defines how sin, personal sin, is forgiven. We come back to Luther again. We come back to the Reformation again. Now, you may be saying, uh, why 
Why stress this point over and over? Why do we keep going back to the 16th century? Why are we talking about the Reformation? Because the entire history of the church of Jesus Christ splits at the Reformation from Roman papistry. It splits exactly on the verse we're looking at this morning. It was the book of Romans that became the rope which was the tug-of-war between Roman Catholicism and Reformed Protestantism. Now, as we've looked at many times before Martin Luther was the catalyst, we know that there were many people before him who taught justification by faith alone, John Huss being at the head of that list. But it was through Luther that God used him as, as a catalyst to expose the errors of Catholic doctrine in the lives of people and in the church to redefine salvation biblically and to renew and recapture the doctrine of sola fide, that you're saved by grace through faith and that alone. Now, the convictions of um, the Protestant Reformation were were contained, as you know, this is review, in five simple statements. If you could say what made Protestantism Protestantism and broke it away from Roman Catholicism, it were these five pronouncements, these five statements, these five convictions, they're real simple. They all start with the word sola. And what distinguished the Protestant Reformation from Roman Catholicism was primarily that word sola, the word alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, not scripture and tradition. Sola Christus, Christ alone, not Christ and the sacraments. Sola gratia, grace alone and not the merits of others and saints applied to us. Sola fide, faith alone and not the works of any of us applied to our salvation. And sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone because he alone is the one who grants, gives, and finishes salvation in an individual. Now as a result of those five pronouncements, it's important to see historically that the Catholic Church had what they call a counter-reformation. So you have a group of men rising up, Luther at the head, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, um, uh, Latimer uh, in England, all of these people who rose up and said, we want to believe the Bible, not tradition. In the light of that, Catholicism had what they call a counter-reformation. In other words, they tried to answer, they tried to deal with these Protestants who were protesting, that's where the word comes from, protesting the dogma of the Catholic Church that there are things outside of Scripture that define the uh, religious experience of a Christian and that define what it means to be right with God. It all came to a head at the Council of Trent, which was the Counter-Reformation, the, the Catholic Reformation against Roman, excuse me, against Protestantism that was initially intended to heal the rift It was initially intended to try to make things right between these two groups. It was a series of meetings that were held between 1545 and 1563, almost two decades. The hope of Trent was to heal the rift between the Protestants and Catholics. Protestants were even represented at the first two meetings of these meetings this council. They were there. They were representing. They were trying to make things right. There were 25 sessions in this council over these two decades and all. All but two, by the way, were held at Trent, which is on the border of of Italy, hence the name Council of Trent. 
But with the election of Pope Pius IV, who came in the middle of this council, uh, all hope of reconciliation diminished and evaporated. Why? Because he laid down the law that there were two primary concerns that the Catholic Church had with Protestant theology that must be squashed and diminished. His words were crushed beyond recovery. You know what two pillars those were? The doctrine of sola scriptura and the doctrine of sola fide. Now, we'll deal with the doctrine of sola scriptura later in the book of Romans, but suffice it to say now that his first and primary concern was that scripture alone was not the final authority because added to scripture was tradition. And by tradition, that meant the popes and the councils, they bore the final authority even in judging the scriptures, meaning and interpretation. The ruling of the magisterium, finally, that's the teaching of the authority of the Catholic Church, specifically ex cathedra by the person sitting on the, the throne, the cathedra, uh, the pope. So the Pope Pius uh, ultimately said, the scripture alone is not sufficient, it's not enough, it was never intended to be the final authority for a Christian. It was the popes and the council of the popes. And you'll remember back that one of the main protests that the early Protestants had against uh, Catholicism was the early councils contradicted each other philosophically and contradicted each other theologically. But still, under this duress, um, Pope Pius IV held to that conviction. That wasn't dealt with as fully, though, as the doctrine of justification, as The Catholic Church tried to defend against the idea that someone could be saved by faith alone outside the church and solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That was the dogma that they spent 15 years fighting against. Remember, justification, let's go back to our very beginning. Justification is the divine act of God where he declares a sinner to be innocent of all his sins. Justification is the divine act whereby God says a sinner is now forgiven and innocent and able to come into his perfect and holy presence. The big question then, the big debate since the 16th century between Catholicism and Protestantism has been that. What does make a man, a woman, right before God? How can a person be forgiven? On the basis of what does God cover, atone for, take away their sins? Well, there's no clearer text in the whole Bible on this subject than the text before us today. These two verses are simple, They are straightforward. They can be explained to a child with very easy understanding. We're going to look at these two, and as I said earlier, we're going to look at these today, and we're going to come back. There's no way we're going to finish this and come back next week and look at this from a higher altitude and look theologically at it, especially going back to the book of Habakkuk and how that foundation is laid. Before this morning, I want to discover with you two indispensable certainties in the doctrine of justification. These are foundational. Two indispensable certainties 
that are contained in the doctrine of justification. These are not a matter of discussion. These are not up for opinion. These are absolute certainties. And Paul goes to great lengths with clear language to make these points. The first one is in verse 27. The means of self-atonement is excluded. The means, the way to be saved by self-atoning, by self-works, self-righteousness is ultimately excluded. Can I say this? Every religion outside of Christianity, every single religious experience outside of Christianity comes down to an attempt to self-atone, to use works, to be good enough, to try hard enough, to make sure that your good is, is lower in the scale and has more weight than your bad, to make sure you're better than other people who would go to heaven. Whatever the sliding scale, every religion comes down to that simple statement. Trying to earn God's favor, trying to gain heaven by works, by being good enough. Called self-atonement. Paul addresses that. He says, where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Well, of works? No, but by a law of faith. What's going on here? Now, we're going to touch on this next week, this week, but trust me, we're going to come back and drill down a little deeper next week. Beginning here in verse 27, the apostle launches a a series of rhetorical questions that will go all the way down to chapter 4, verse 2. He asks and answers these questions. He's saying, in light of the fact that the gospel is God justifying, you go back up and look very very clearly in verse uh, 26, that God is the just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. That's the criteria for salvation. Having faith in Jesus, God's the one who is just to make that pronouncement and the justifier, the one who actually makes the person righteousness by applying the atonement of Christ to their sins. By that fact, Paul says, based on that, who's gonna brag? Who is going to boast? Now, we looked at this uh, very briefly when we sang it this morning, but you'll know that this is obviously an echo of what was happening back in Jeremiah chapter 9. Critical text. It's a song we sing. It's verses we memorize. Very simple, very straightforward, very penetrating. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. What is he saying there? If you're wise, don't think God looks down at you and says, wow, what a wise man, what a wise woman. I've got to have them in the kingdom. Don't brag in that. That's not going to be what makes you right before God. He goes on. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. This isn't just being strong physically. This is being powerful. This is having uh, the ability to make decisions. This is having uh, moral standing and, and uprightness in a community. Let not the mighty man, the man of great reputation, boast in his great reputation. And let not a rich man boast in his riches. Don't be happy that you have means. Don't brag in the fact that you can boast in that. You know what makes, can I just be honest with you, what makes... Ministry in Kansas City so difficult? What makes ministry in America so difficult? It's oftentimes difficult because we're a wealthy group of people. It's oftentimes difficult to show people how they need Christ. Now, I know what you're all saying. Well, that guy or that gal is wealthy, but I'm not. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus defines wealth and being wealthy as this. If you know where you're going to sleep tomorrow night, beyond tonight... And if you have more than one thing to wear, and you know where your next meal is coming from, you're wealthy. That pretty much defines us all. 
It's very difficult in, in a Western society to show people that they don't need to boast in their riches. God doesn't care about your portfolio unless you're using it for him. But he goes on, but let him who boasts, boast in this. The Hebrew is incredible. It says, since you're going to boast, we're all natural born braggers. Since you're going to boast, boast in this. Boast in what? That he understands and knows me, says the Lord. I am the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Those are, those are all terms of salvation. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that I am just and the justifier of those who need to be saved. The biblical doctrine of salvation is accomplished for the believer. You understand that? It's accomplished for a believer, not with a believer. God and us, God and I are not the dynamic duo in salvation. You take the lead, I'll take the less part. You be Batman, I'll be Robin. We'll both get saved together. That's not how salvation works. He is both just and he is the justifier. Therefore, who's going to brag? Who can possibly say, look what I've done, look what a good and moral man or woman I am, that God would look at me as better than someone else and save me? That was the fundamental way that a Jewish person thought in this day. Remember, God, I thank thee that I am not a pagan, a rascal, uh, fair, uh, 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 pharisaical. I shouldn't have used that term because it was a Pharisee saying that. I thank you that I'm not a Gentile who doesn't have an approach to you like I do. I'm in the inner circle. God loves me. I have the law. I know how to obey. Aren't you glad that God has not created a system where your salvation and mine is dependent on how good we are, if that were the case, no one would ever go to heaven. If being found righteous and just and acceptable before God had anything to do with our good works, we would have something to pat ourselves on the back about. That's what Paul's saying. Are you going to brag? Are you going to boast? Speak speaking specifically to Jews who had the law, who had access to God through the law. He's saying, really? Okay, if you're going to brag by that, remember the first part of chapter 3, we'll get to this in chapter 4. If you're going to brag about that, how well have you obeyed the law? Well, better than someone else, better than... No, no, you have to obey the law. Are you ready for this? Perfectly to be acceptable to God. No one's ever done that. There's two laws here in, this, uh, in his answer. He answers with a question and then answers the questions themselves. You know, what law, what, what's going on here? Two laws. There's simply principles and rules of life. Only two options, a law of works or a law of faith. That's what he's saying. Either you're going to brag and boast about a law of works, how good you are, or you're going to brag and boast about what God has done and you did nothing except believe. Footnote to the whole uh, series in Sola Fide, I, if you hear me say this 10 more times and you get weary of me saying that, then I've done my job. We ought to be so unspeakably amazed. Almost, I don't want to be blasphemous, but almost to the point of doubting, almost to the point of saying, this is too good to be true, that God saves by believing something 
Does that not shock you? It should. It certainly did the Jews who had spent their whole life in second temple gnomism, this, this uh, Pharisee-Sadducee kind of system, uh, the works of the law, where they said, we, we need to obey enough laws to get to heaven. By the way, since they couldn't obey God, they started making up laws they could obey so they could earn favor with God. How many steps you can take away from your house on the Sabbath, that's pretty easily regulated. He says there's only two laws. Law of works, law of faith. Trust me, you do not want to be judged by a law of works. We can't brag on that. We can't boast in that. Paul lays down the fact that it is only by the law of faith that salvation comes. He's playing so, uh, in the original language, he's playing on the word nomos, on the word law. You want to talk about law? Here's the law. The law is faith. You want to talk about the laws of the Old Testament? No, the real law is the law that you simply believe that you can do nothing and God has done it all. Amazing. Verse 27 then is the principle. Verse 28 is where we want to drill down. That's the explanation. Now we come to the explanation. Now we come to the second indispensable, indispensable certainty of the doctrine of justification. And that is the means of faith is exclusive. Works excluded. Faith exclusive. For we maintain, he says, verse 28, and if you ever underline things in your Bible, highlight things, put a star, an asterisk, if you ever do that in your Bible, can I just suggest this ought to be in that category? These simple words. We maintain that a man is justified, made right with God. His sins are forgiven, taken away, perfect in God's eyes. A man is justified, how? By faith. How simple is that? And then he gives a footnote, apart from the works of the law. Is that clear? Can it be any more clear? Can you explain that to your four-year-old? Plain language, there it is. Little explanation even needed to apply to this. And however... And we have to talk about this because this is the great divide in the church. This is the verse that was laid down as the pillar for justification by faith alone by the Protestants that the Catholics said, yes, but. Remember, there are two words you have to be very careful of in your theology. Be careful of the word and, and be careful of the word but. Our Mormon friends will say, I know the Bible says that and the Book of Mormon says. That is really trouble. Damnable heresy resides in that book. There's also the, well, I know the Bible says that, but you qualify and you try to change it. Verse 27 we just looked at, applies the alone, the sola, and verse 27 provides the faith in sola fide. It's not by a law of works. It's only by faith. And it's exclusively in the law of faith explained in verse 28. The great debate then in church history, especially from Catholicism, is based on what James says that seems to contradict this. So we're going to get as far as we can in this today, and then we'll push pause and come back to this. You cannot study Romans 3 without looking at James chapter 2. So take your Bibles, turn over to James chapter 2. We have to answer what 
Roman Catholicism is held since the, the Council at Trent to be the contradiction of Paul. Paul says, a man is justified by faith. Supplied in the context alone. Seems clear enough, doesn't it? Well, what do we do with this then? Just follow along. Verse 14, James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Is it really faith alone? And the Catholics ask. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, is dead. Faith is dead. Being by itself. Let me go ahead. Being by itself is different than alone, and we'll come back to that. But someone will say, you have faith, huh, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Wow, flashing light. Isn't there a contradiction here? You see that faith was working with his works. James actually answers the whole debate in this verse, by the way. Faith was working with his works, or through his works, by his works. As a result of the works, faith was completed or perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Did you read verse 24? Does that seem tricky? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is what Roman Catholicism holds on to and says there is no such doctrine as sola fide. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's the deal? How do you, how do you possibly reconcile that? Paul says, you're justified by faith. James says, you're justified by works. What is it? Is it really as simple as the Protestants like Romans and the Catholics like James? And they're both in the Bible. Can't we just have Rodney King theology and all just get along? It's not that simple. Not that simple at all. But it's not a contradiction. Is this a case where the Bible speaks against itself? No, no, no. James is talking about something quite different than Paul. They're answering two different questions. You can say it this way. They're fighting two different enemies back to back. What are those enemies? James is answering the, the antinomian. Antinomos, no law. James is answering the guy who says, well, 
I don't have to have any works. I can live like I want to because God justifies. If he justifies by faith, I don't have to worry about it. And James is saying, no, if you're really one who has faith, that will show up as the caboose, not the engine, in your works. Paul's fighting another enemy. Paul's defending another enemy. He's defending what's called the gnomist, the legalist. The Jews in his day who were saying, no, works does save you. And if I can do enough and try hard enough, then God will be pleased and he'll accept me and forgive me. Do you know, let me ask you two questions. Do you know people who struggle on both those poles? Let me ask you this. Have you felt your heart struggle on both of those poles? Both of those things exist in us all the time. Paul, by the way, will anticipate that. Can we go back to Romans chapter 6 for a moment? You know when we get to Abraham in chapter 4, we're going to come back to James chapter 2. But in Romans chapter 6, we can look ahead for a moment. Paul says it's by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, not your works. So he anticipates some pushback. And this is what he anticipates. Verse 6, chapter, one, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then, after explaining justification by grace through faith for five chapters in Christ alone, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now he's talking to the same people that James was talking to. May it never be. There's not a stronger way to say that in the Greek language. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's the message of James 2. James is saying, if you say you have faith and it doesn't show up in your life, you don't have real faith. Paul is saying, if you say you have works, but you're not, your faith is not in Christ, your works are useless. They're both fighting two different extremes. So let's deal with the, 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 the language. We'll come back to this in Romans 4 because he compare, talks about Abraham's justification. But when, Paul, when James rather says that James is just, Abraham was justified by his works, does he really mean he was saved by his works? What does he say right after that? He believed God, and it was counted, reckoned, accounted, put into his account as righteousness. Now, just hold on to that, because we will come back to that extensively in chapter 4 of Romans. But for now, know that that great divide was not really a divide theologically. It wasn't a divide in the scriptures. There is no contradiction. James is saying, faith works not works create faith. This is the age-old lordship salvation controversy. Works cannot save you. But if you say you have saving faith and no works accompany that, James says that's useless. What's his point? Are you ready for this? The devil has faith. And he shudders. But he will not end up in heaven. There is such a thing as an unsaved believer. See, that's an odd thing to say, an unsaved believer. Where do you get that? Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they believe. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. They believed the facts, Christmas, Easter, they believed the facts, but they never had a commitment to the Lord that issued forth in works. Works don't save Works don't save, works cannot save, but they do prove that you do have faith that does save. 
Now, I hope that's not confusing, but just know that we are going to be dealing with this issue. Abraham's justification, uh, and what does James say, what does Paul say? A lot in the coming weeks. The brother of our Lord James just says, show me your faith by your works. And then he goes on to say that faith without works is dead. A faith without works cannot save anyone. Real faith works. Now back to Paul's argument. Justification, as we've said over and over, is the legal action. It's a forensic court system in which God declares a sinner righteous and forgiven as though he had satisfied the very law of God. He doesn't infuse grace. He imputes grace. He, he gives grace. He grants grace. He changes the ledger. He takes our debt and puts Christ's righteousness there. Amazing. It's corroborated throughout the Bible. Please don't try to follow along. Let me just take you on a quick tour. Justification is based entirely on Christ's work and Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood on the cross. Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood. Justification is a gift of grace in Romans 3, 24, and in Titus 3, 7. That comes through faith in Romans 3, 28, and 5, 1. Christians receive Jesus, John 1, 12, to put their faith in him, Isaiah 53, and 1 Peter 2, 24. And in so doing, they become just before God. Justification is not by works, Romans 3.20 tells us. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tell us. Because our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God, Isaiah 64.6 tells us. Therefore, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Back to the Council of Trent. And I, this, please understand my heart. I... I I have a real issue with Roman Catholic error. I don't have any issues with Roman Catholics. We should be giving them the wonderful gospel that there is no purgatory. You don't get a shot here and an extra shot in purgatory. And if you're not giving it a shot, someone can pray for you or give money to the church and they'll give you a shot there. We can evangelize Roman Catholics and tell them there is Salvation to be had, and you can be relieved from this endless treadmill of guilt and consequences. Council of Trent, not only did the Catholic Church deny this doctrine of sola fide, the council went beyond that in denying the doctrine and declared that anyone who believes what you and I believe, and this is in, in uh, uh, Catholic dogma today, right now, to be anathema, outside the kingdom, sentenced to hell. Listen to the following statements that are found in the Council of Trent. By the way, everything that is in the Council of Trent, you need to know this, was reaffirmed uh, by Vatican I in um, 1870 and by the Vatican Council II in 1962 and 65. All of the major Catholic catechisms quote heavily from Trent. Let me just give you some of what is said. Sixth session, justification, canons concerning justification. That's the title. Canon 9, this is out of the Council of Trent from a Catholic document. I'm quoting. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order for him to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Translation. 
If you believe that your works don't contribute to your salvation, you're unsaved. Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, isn't that what we believe? That is what we believe. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. Canon 14. If anyone says that a man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified, that's a wonderful definition of faith, that no one is truly justified except him who believes himself is justified, again, a good explanation, and that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are affected, then let him be anathema. Canon 15, we can go on. If anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound by faith, ex fide, to believe that he is certainly in the number of the predestined, then let him be anathema. What does all that mean? It's not enough to have a different opinion if you have a belief that your faith alone is the means by which God saves you. According to Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II, you are outside the kingdom and doomed to hell. That's what Trent said. What's God say? Please, just hold on. I don't think you can turn to these fast enough. Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. Romans 4, 5. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Christ Jesus, Romans, Galatians 3.11, let, uh, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, why? So that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Ephesians 3, 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Philippians 3, 9. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians 3.9, we'll come back to that. So why would the Catholic Church perpetrate such an obvious false teaching upon its followers? Why would Rome condemn to hell, anathematize, anyone who believed in salvation or justification by faith alone? What's the purpose? Now, I want to give the benefit of the doubt. I think there are some people who really do believe there's a contradiction in the Bible, and therefore the Pope has to decide the fight between Paul and James. That's what Pius thought. 
When I think Roman Catholicism as a system from birth to death is based on works and a sacramental system that keeps its members in bondage to that system and paying money to the system to keep it going. Because our Catholic friends are dependent on the sacraments for their salvation rather than the finished work of Christ, Catholics must always be doing something good to maintain their standing before God. I have such sympathy to my Catholic friends. You can get off the treadmill of works. Listen again to the Council of Trent about works. If any man, Canon 20, if anyone says that a man is justified, however perfect, is not bound to the commandments of God, but only to believe as if the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life. It's hard to hear that in a negative tone. Without condition of observing all the commandments, let him be anathema. We could go on. There's, I have multiple canons here you could, we could go through. By the way, the, um, the acts to be performed by a Roman Catholic for justification are first and foremost at the head of the list aimed from birth at baptism. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 977, says this. Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ who died for our sins, rose for our justification so that we too might walk in the newness of life. Do you see where faith is absent there? Can an infant believe anything? Catholic Catechism, paragraph 2020. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted to us through baptism. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. It is the most excellent work of God's mercy. Not faith, but baptism. I wish we had the time to do a church history lesson just on this. Unfortunately, the Church of England, when it had its Protestant Reformation, instead of baptizing believers said, well, we don't want you baptized to be a Catholic and saved in that scheme, so we'll let you baptize in the Church of England as an Anglican and be saved in our scheme. The Reformation wasn't completed in England. Here's my question. Says who? Says who? If you go back to Trent... The fundamental Roman dogma is that the Bible contradicts itself, James and Romans. Therefore, the arbitrator for God, of God, and of God's word is the Pope and the councils. Romans 3, 28 could not be any more clear. Man is justified by faith. Now, the reason, why the history lesson? Why, why beat up on Catholic theology? Well, first of all, it's, this was the, 
the watershed passage that was argued for 20 years that, that sealed the rift between Protestantism and Catholicism. We, we can't skip that part of church history. Does Mission Road Bible Church hate Catholics? Far from it. Far from it. We want them to come to Christ by faith and be saved by his righteousness, not by their penance. Listen. If your salvation was up to you, you'd never be saved. If it was up to me, I would never be saved. Paul, Paul said, I am the utmost sinner. The greatest king in the history of Israel was an adulterous murderer. So by what righteousness should God say, my wrath is turned away from you? It's by a son. Romans begs and asks and then answers the question that Catholic doctrine doesn't want to, that it's resistant to and rebellious to. Simply this, it can't be that simple. It can't be just faith. And just wait, because for the next three chapters, you're going to hear over and over and over again from Paul, who, who understands you heard him the first time, but is going to say it, 10 or 12 more different ways, a whole chapter as an illustration in chapter 4 on Abraham himself. If you believe, God will reckon it as what? Righteousness. If you're a believer, you ought to constantly say, that sounds too good to be true. Our conscience and our guilt want to make us add something to that. Well, surely I have to do something and try harder and, and be better than that guy God says, you're never going to be good enough. But my son was. And you can have his righteousness by faith. Do, do you have that? Is your faith to go to heaven and be with God based on his work and his righteousness or on your goodness and your good works? It's a good day. You come to a church with people who would love to talk to you about what it means to receive Christ by faith. To as many, John 1, 12, to as many as received him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. As believed him. We'd love for you to believe today. Please, there's no lunch as important as this. Stop, talk to someone in the pews. Our prayer room will be open uh, to my right. We'll be able to, able to talk to you if you want to. Please, please don't leave without making this right. Father, we, we've just begun to scratch the surface of this, and, and I want to confess to you and to my sweet friends here at Mission Road that it's not my heart to hate, to disdain Catholics, but I must confess it is in my heart to disdain Catholicism because it takes salvation and places it in the hands of man rather than affirming what you've said in your word that it's in the finished work of Jesus Christ through his death and by his resurrection. Father, call some to yourself, please, please, if there are 
people. Well, I'm sure there are people here who understand facts but have not made a commitment. Teach them that faith without works is dead. To bow the knee to you. Open our eyes now that we may behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>